Welcome to The Improver, the podcast that explores ideas in healthcare improvement and participatory change. Hosted by Dr. Naeem Ahmed and Lara Mott. Hi everyone, welcome to The Improver. I'm Lara Mott, CEO and co-founder of Improve Well. And I'm Naeem, clinical lead and co-founder of Improve Well. We are really excited to welcome Dr. Kathleen McGrow to the podcast today. Kathleen is Chief Nursing Information Officer for Microsoft Health and Life Sciences, where she uses her expertise in data, analytics, and artificial intelligence to educate organizations in enhancing clinical, operational, and financial performance, maximizing capacity and patient experience, and transforming care models. Before she worked at Microsoft, uh, Kathleen has held uh, various senior positions at GE Healthcare and Philips, and her clinical background spans many years as a trauma nurse. She was also involved in building an electronic health record system for the Amazon Basin. So Kathleen, welcome to The Improver. Hi, Laura. Hi, Naeem. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for, for coming. So Kathleen, um, you and I already know each other, but, but for the benefit of our listeners, it would be wonderful to hear a little bit of background um, about your career. You obviously started as a, a nurse in a clinical role. Um, so if you could just talk us through, uh, yeah, what brought you into the world of information and analytics in healthcare, that would be wonderful. Sure, sure, Laura, thanks for asking. Um, it's... Um... One of those stories where it's sometimes happenstance, things happen, right? And you take some twists and turns. So my background is a trauma critical care nurse. Um, I've been very lucky. I've worked at organizations across the United States. Um, I worked at Johns Hopkins in the surgical ICU. I worked at University of Maryland Shock Trauma in the trauma resuscitation unit, which is um, the first level one trauma center in the country. And essentially the golden hour, which is that hour of to get to definitive care for a trauma patient to save their life was actually developed there. So, um, you know, had a very strong pedigree of, of trauma. And I, back when I was a, a nurse in clinical, um, we, you know, did everything, most everything on paper and pencil. And we actually had a computer system called uh, the MIMS clinical system, MCS is what they called it. And um, I had a very sick patient. It was a young girl who was in a car wreck who her arm flew out the window. So that therefore the moral of the story is do not leave your window open when you're driving at a high rate of speed. And essentially she amputated part of her hand and she had to go to the operating room. And as I was looking up her laboratory results in MIMS clinical system at MCS, it was like 3.2.1 for hematology, 3.2.2 for chemistry. And so I had to look at two different screens and I said to my coworker, one of my other nurses, why can we not see this all together? <laughs> And, you know, essentially she said, cause some guys in the basement built this for us. And I was like, what, who, who are these guys in the basement? And she was just like some engineers. Oh, and they never came and asked us what we wanted. So the nursing staff never had any type of input into it. And I just kind of had that, hmm, you know, and went about my business and, you know, kept, kept working. And then more and more, I kind of saw that there was this now, you know, we're getting into more and more technology. And so how can, how can we as nurses be represented in that? And I, you know, had this kind of aha moment where I realized I needed to go back to school. If I was going to be recognized for anything related to informatics, I had to go back to school and I had to get my master's in nursing informatics. And it just so happened that the University of Maryland School of Nursing had the only nursing informatics 
program at that time in the in the country in the U.S. And it was directly across the street from where I worked. So I could literally <laughs> walk from work to school. And that was when, you know, you went to school in face-to-face classes. Um, so like I said, uh, you know, sometimes luck and happenstance. And then the other thing is always treat people well because they'll be nice to you, right? Um, and so I was lucky enough to get into the program. Um, just a little side note, when I applied, they actually thought I was applying to be a trauma critical care nurse practitioner. I had to go back and say, no, I want nursing <laughs> informatics. And they're like, why? So, you know, there just weren't a lot of people that were applying for that, um, but I'm glad I did and it worked out really well, um, you know, all these years later, um, but that it was really related to a patient. Um, wow. the, the folks that I worked with at the bedside, they did not believe I would leave the bedside. And I said, I'm going to tell you right now, one day I'm not going to come back here. I'm actually going to be getting a job in the world of informatics. And that's what I did. Um, but I will say I'm a very um, pragmatic person and I didn't know if this informatics thing was going to work. So I actually continued to work at Shock Trauma for five years after I started working at GE Healthcare. So I did oh. GE Healthcare during the week and I worked at Shock Trauma on the weekend because I didn't know if this informatics wow. thing was going to work out. Right. I just, you know. Wow. Probably something about healthcare professionals, <laughs> the fact that we're risk averse. Right. Uh, and it's interesting mm-hmm. talking about innovation and taking risks and stuff like that but it goes kind of against our sensibilities as healthcare professionals um one of those that that that, that was a beautiful story in terms of um connecting what you saw on the front line and and taking that and that's really you know the philosophy we have at improve world but um one of the things that we hear is that the people in the front line will say look we just don't have the we don't have that. This is so far removed from um, my day job as a as a nurse, as a doctor, as an allied health professional. I mean, how how do you bring it all back to to them? And what what could you say to them? Is is this a nice to have or something that you know everyone should be doing? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, that's a good question, Aim. So. Um, because I was, you know, around when like informatics was kind of birthed, right? It was really before electronic health records were as deployed as they are now. Now they're just everywhere. And my nieces who are nurses, they have never done paper ever. So it would kind of freak them out, right? If their system would go down. Um, so I don't know if this will answer your question exactly or not, but I feel that what happened when they came in with electronic health systems, they said, um, you know, you have to deploy these, right? And as clinicians, we were like, we'll do it. We just want to take care of patients. So we abdicated a lot of power to like information technology. You know, we said, oh, let the IT do it. Let IT do it. Not realizing the ramifications of today. Now, 20, you know, maybe 25 years later, depending on how long ago you had implemented your system. And now we realize the ramifications. And I think that in general, the the, my nieces, you know, that are, you know, newer nurses, they do realize the value of the informatic, the nurse informatician, because it helped, they help them so much. Um, whereas I was so early on, there was really kind of this, like, why are you doing, like I said, like, they were like, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that program and not the trauma program? Um, so I think that because we advocated so much power, we're now trying to, I don't want to say take that power back, but we're now trying to really inject ourselves into uh, these systems and the workflows and how they can, you know, these systems are here to improve the workflow. And that kind of brings me to the whole point of, you know, what's going on with our clinicians and the terrible moral distress and, you know, moral injury they're experiencing because 
I'm not saying that the root cause is electronic health records, but I think they definitely contributed to as a root cause um, for the distress that our providers are experiencing because part of this is that it's, I'm taking this way down a different path name, sorry, but part of it is that we've given them such huge amounts of volumes of data through the use of electronic health records that they have this enormous, enormous information and uh, cognitive overload occurring. Um, so that, you know, kind of compounds amongst everything else that they're trying to do. Um, I would say that now the nurse informatics has seen a value because the clinicians realize that, you know, there's someone there who can kind of help embed and get into that workflow, but it's taken a really long time. And I don't know that it's hundred percent across the board. I think that organizations still deploy systems that don't necessarily meet the needs of that workflow. I mean, electronic health records, come on, let's face it. They really were around regulatory in the United States. It was around regulatory and billing. Right. Mm. Um, and, you know, we weren't really thinking of a 360 view of the patient and we never, I mean, in the beginning, we never thought, oh, the patient's going to access their electronic health record and the government, U.S. government is going to mandate this transparency. Um, so, so it's been, it's such a huge thing. We, we didn't know, you know, back then we were just like, oh, we're going to, you know, push a couple buttons. My vital signs will flow in um, automatically. This will be great. A lot of it was, you know, not so great. I mean, uh, the, the, I've heard, you know, my colleagues, I, I mean, I'm a radiologist, but my, my colleagues that are working, I guess, more directly on the wards would say that um, wheeling a computer around actually sometimes can be uh, almost we've created another barrier um, between them and, and the patient and they spend a lot of their time typing and they're not looking at um uh, at the patient itself so there, there are some challenges I mean you've you've alluded to to a lot of them but um, that may be uh, affecting patient care but on the other hand um, it's been a powerful tool and I think there's we're still we've still got more to go really in terms of patients having access to it and um, what do, what do you foresee in terms of that in terms of patient empowerment patient education yeah, I, I think you're absolutely spot on. I think as a radiologist, you your um, service line, right, your your um, profession has seen probably the most value, right? Because, you know, the PAC systems and, you know, everything that happened. And I've seen a doctor, I've seen a neurosurgeon who went in and was doing a wet read of a film to do a ventriculostomy and actually go, oops, and pull it down and flip it over because he had it backwards. You can't do that on a PAC system, right? So there, you know, those safety measures that have really happened and then all the AI that goes on with imaging. So, so you're definitely in the sweet spot of AI, I think, right now. Um, I think that for patients, um, now, we didn't talk about this in preparation, but I don't know if you guys know, um, and I, maybe I should have let you know, Laura, is I actually broke my leg back in October of last year. So I fell down the stairs, had a fractured oh, femur, and I actually ended up at shock trauma, which is where <laughs> I used to be a nurse. And that just my whole, how my whole care was coordinated. Um, well, it was very heavy into COVID. I'm a nurse. It was height of COVID, Delta. I was taken to a tertiary care facility that was not able to do the surgery that I required because it was very complicated. Um, and I literally did things like I took a photo of my x-ray and I sent it to my orthopedic surgeon via text and he called me and he's like, you need to be transferred. I'm going to make a phone call. And then, wow. you know, I got told I was being transferred to shock trauma. And two hours later, I said to the nurse, have you heard anything about my transfer? She's like, no. So I 
Facebook messaged a friend of oh, mine that works with staff trauma. And I said, Hey, I broke my leg. I'm fractured femur. I'm at, you know, this hospital. And, and before I could even get my phone down on the stretcher, I hear ping. And she said, girl, I saw your last name and your age. And I knew it was you. And I called for you two hours ago. And 15 minutes later, somebody walked in to take me, right. She wow. sent them over. Um, so I, you know, totally had to advocate and coordinate my own care via Facebook mm. Messenger, which I think is kind of, you know, a horrible thing to say. Mm. But I, you know, when they pulled me in, they were like, oh, can you, do you have a smartphone? I'm like, yes. And they're like, okay, do you have an email? I'm like, yes. And then they're like, we're going to send you a link and you need to register. Oh, and by the way, you need to upload your insurance card front and back. And I will tell you, I was in excruciating pain and I was high on fentanyl because they gave me fentanyl on the ambulance. So, you know, I just could think of my 93 year old aunt, she would never be able to do yes. any of that. So yeah. we've made it really hard on the patients, right? Name. I mean, like, this is crazy, you know, what we've done. Oh, and by the way, I had no one who could come visit me because it was the height of Delta, you know, COVID. So there was zero visitors at that time in both facilities. So I was, you know, pretty much on my own, uh, trying to coordinate my care. Um, but I will say, um, you know, we have to be our own best advocate and we really need someone to advocate for us as a patient. Um, so I think that having you know, the ability to have the electronic health record, to have a portal or some way to access it, to be able to share it with your family or a family member you know, so that they can help you, um, especially if you're you know, in, in no shape to be able to understand or comprehend things. Uh, but it's funny that you brought that up because I have a very recent, <laughs> that's my very recent patient experience. And I survived it. I, you know, I made it through. I was very proud that I was able to figure out how to upload my insurance card, even though I had fentanyl on board. Um, but we, we have got to help both our providers and our patients. It's just really to the point of being untenable, um, you know, as a, as a patient to try to figure out and, you know, get all your information pulled together and everything. So it's, it's been kind of crazy. I mean, it's, it's so, it's so interesting that you, share that that personal story Kathleen and thank you for that I also had a similar kind of health incident um uh, not a similar incident as yours but six months ago and you know Naeem was pretty much the first person I called to sort of say you know um I'm getting these scans and I don't know what to do and you know and and I think you're absolutely right if you're um if, if you are your own advocate and you've got people around you that can advise and help, that's great. But I was thinking the same. If I, if I wasn't working in this industry, if I didn't, uh, you know, funnily enough, the hospital I was in was one of the first uh, hospitals where I'd walk the corridors, you know, rolling out our software many, many years ago. Um, but it's very daunting and really complex and overwhelming. And, and um, so, I, 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 I really hear you with those, uh, those important messages. Um, I think uh, if I can just take it back to sort of some level of simplicity, if we can, because I think AI and the world of artificial intelligence can also be very overwhelming. And you say AI to, you know, if I say it to my father, he would probably think it's, you know, machines making decisions about him. If we say AI in the context of radiology, you know, we, we've touched on that briefly in, in the sense of um, PAC systems and, and imaging and, and being able to um, spot trends that perhaps the naked eye might not be able to see. Um, but from your point of view, if somebody asked you, what does AI in health and care mean to you? Can you describe that in, in simplistic terms? 
Yeah, I'll do my best, Laura. I will say I do get asked that a lot. And actually, I get asked from clinicians, especially nurses, like chief nursing officers, they'll say, oh, Kathleen, what's the difference between CDS, clinical decision support, and artificial intelligence? Because my nurses don't realize there's a difference. And I actually wrote an article uh, to try to kind of explain it, the essentials for nursing, just so that they would understand it. Um, so one of my good friends just happened to, you know, write a book around AI, um, Tom Lawry, who I work with, and I use his definition, right? It's really that AI, it's an area of computer science. It emphasizes the creation of machines that work and react like humans. So essentially, um, the computer has the ability, right? The system has the ability to, pick, to uh, mimic human brain functions. And this is like um, learning, speech, problem-solving vision, knowledge generation. So it's really this constellation of technologies that allows computers or machines to sense, comprehend, act, and learn. Um, and really, if you think about it, a lot of people use interchangeably like artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence and machine learning, and that's okay. Machine learning is just, you know, a type of AI. So I speak about AI quite a bit um, in the nursing community because they, they, um, they really do want to understand it and they really do want to know the difference between artificial intelligence. So that's the model that's kind of learning and making changes as it learns. It's not necessarily programmed, like if, then what. Um, clinical decision support is, you know, really like I have this, then that happens. So I have a certain blood pressure range, it triggers and I get an alert. And that's how kind of I explain it to them because most nurses are working with clinical decision support every day. Um, and they sometimes think that it's artificial intelligence and it's not necessarily, that's rules-based engines, right? Um, so I do try to explain to them uh, the difference and it did motivate me to write an article because I got a lot of the same question, Laura. Yeah, so it's, it's a, that you'd ask that. yeah. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's just, it's a, such a um, evolving field still, you know, in our, in our lifetime, it's sort of, it's really gathered pace and, um you know, you see all of these incredible videos that is it Boston Labs that posts, you know, with the with the the robot dogs and the, you know, and all of this kind of stuff. So there's various elements of it touching our lives. Um, but specifically AI in the health and care setting is is just an interesting one to, and obviously you are very well positioned to give your views on this. And for nurses in particular, then where do you see the biggest use of of AI, because you've obviously mentioned clinical decision support, which makes complete sense, but that's not necessarily. AI in its purest sense. So what, where do you, where do you sure. see the biggest sort of match here with both so, your bats? Oh, sorry, Lars. So I think artificial intelligence is going to be huge in automating manual processing for nurses, right? For okay. example, ambient voice for dictation and, you know, Microsoft purchased Nuance, which um, has Dragon Ambient experience for physicians, but I'm very bullish on it for nursing. So if my patient comes in and says, you know, I say, you know, Mr. Smith, how do you feel? And he says, I don't feel so good. Well, tell me the problem. I have chest pain. And it could just literally pre-populate as the patient is talking to me. Um, it could do an entire systems review as I'm walking through it instead of me. You mentioned name, right? Like the doctor's always looking at the computer. Well, the nurses are too, right? Um, over 30% of a nurse's time could be of their day could be spent at the computer. Uh, so if we could have, you know, um, ambient voice. I think it's a little tougher for nursing um, from what the engineers tell me, right? Most nurses document in um, flow sheets. 
So it's trafficking of message into a very discrete um, data field versus a physician who does like a SOAP note. That's why it's a little bit easier for the physicians. Um, some of the other examples might be around computer vision. You can take a picture of a wound um, and it could help you stage that wound, say, you know, if it's like a pressure ulcer. Um, some, you know, care managers do a lot around claims adjudication um, in the United States. Um, you know, we have many, many insurers. It's very complicated. Um, and man, much of that is a manual process. So it could be potentially automated and traffic it appropriately. So I think there's a lot of opportunity um, for nursing um, if we look at the manual processes that they're doing today and how we can help to automate them. Um, a lot of nurses are using mobile devices. So they actually have the technology right at their hands. Um, and then some also use you know, the WOWs, the workstation on wheels as well. Um, but really it, the opportunities I think are endless. We just need to figure out how it is, how does it fit seamlessly into the workflow? We don't want to create a new workflow for some, you know, yeah. AI to be driven, right. Or, you know, to, to make it more erroneous for our providers. Cause they're, they're really suffering. The nurses are really suffering right now. And there's just so much for them to do. So what can we do uh, to automate those things? That's very cool. Naeem, I don't know if you're, you know, because this is sort of, as a clinical person, this sort of stuff sounds fantastic to somebody that's, you know, not in a, in a clinical role. How, how do you, how would you say that um, you would, uh, you know, the argument about where money should be spent, right? So everyone is thinking, every healthcare system is thinking about money. Uh, and that money could be spent on actually having physical nurses or purchasing software, AI and other tech. Um, how, 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 what, what should the com conversation be like around that, do you think? Because there's some yeah. versus some long-term gains here. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, name, And, you know, it's definitely a thinker, right? You have to really think through that. So, um, and I didn't go out and look, um, I did, um, I've been doing a lot on workforce recently, the workforce crisis. I have a ton of statistics on the US, um, not as much on the um, global, but I did look in the WHO and their 2030 initiative. So I think globally, we're, we're probably close. Um, there's this huge crisis where um, in the US, specifically to the US, you know, we have this huge growing senior population. And then we have this decreasing in birth rate. And I'm not sure how that equates across the world globally, but I do know globally, there's much more opportunity for people to go in other different, um, into other different professions than into say nursing. So we really do, we really have a very significant pipeline issue and a very significant referral issue, right? Or, um, you know, talent and acquisition issue. Um, that's that's growing you know how do we grow and get nurses into you know the field it's not happening so we're going to be at a huge deficit so there is really no way to say we're going to make more nurses it just we can't do it um and there's there's a lot of reasons behind that um and we don't have enough time on this podcast to talk through that because it's, it's a big problem big hairy problem um, what we do have the opportunity is to what i say offload some of these more manual processes or maybe non-nursing function, functioning processes or non-nursing functions and allow nurses to work top of license. So if we look at some maybe different models of care or if we look at, you know, adjunctively, how can we support nurses 
Um, you know, but in the U.S., we have a support staff problem as well. So people, you know, working um, as patient care technicians, we also have that issue as well. Um, so it's not like I can just hire a bunch of patient care techs to come in and do, you know, all the activities of daily living for patients and things like that. So it really comes down to what do we really need our clinical, our licensed clinical staff to do, right? The assessments, the IV starts, you know, the very specific things they need to do. I think some of it's of our own making. This is Kathleen McRow's opinion as a nurse. You know, we always wanted to do everything for our patients. And when I worked at CHOP Trauma, I would get the crutches. I would crutch walk the patient. I could have called PT to do it. But you know what I was like? you know, I got to get this patient, I got to get this patient um, discharge, PT is going to take another half an hour, and I got to get moving, you know, so we took a lot of it on ourselves. And we, you know, we, we kind of made some of the problems our, ourselves, I think. Um, but I think now we're kind of at the point where we really need to leverage our support staff and all the other services to help us. And then how do we work top of license, but I truly believe artificial intelligence, robotic process automation, um, having the ability, you know, to really um, look at the data to get the insights to leverage those interventions for our patients is going to be really important. We have a ton of data. We're not necessarily, you know, we're looking at the data, but are we getting the correct insights to care for our patients and how do we trust it? And I think part of that is, you know, there's still a little bit of leeriness around AI. And do I really want to trust that that algorithm says that this patient's at higher risk for X and, you know, go after it? I mean, there might be even another controversial, which, you, as you said, might be outside the scope of the, the podcast about even maybe the lower banded. I don't know if you say band bands, but, you know, uh, entry level jobs being replaced then by uh, by by some of this technology. Um, that, that might be another risk uh, of uh, a knock on effect of the technology as well. Um, yeah. So what, what would you say um, excites you? I mean, you have this global view. Uh, in terms of technologies at the moment, is there a top, you know, one or two or even three technologies that you look at and you think, you know what, I think this is going to have a real impact on the shop floor for, for, for uh, clinicians. Um, is there any examples of things that you've seen or technologies being developed that you're really excited about? I think that um, virtual health, I think telehealth is very exciting, hospital in the home. I think we're going to see more and more um, people staying in their homes and, you know, aging, many more people are aging in place, so they don't have somewhere to go. So they're aging in place. I think we'll see more and more devices in those homes. Um, we'll be able to manage people in their homes much better, whether it's through telehealth or virtual health. So I think that's really exciting. Um, I actually, um, at one point, was a product manager for ambulatory telehealth. And programmatically, we manage patients uh, based on their disease process. So we did like diabetes and CHF, and we had very set things that the patients needed to do. Um, to, and they all said, I'd rather be in my house with my pets. Um, so that was, you know, for me, that's a patient satisfier. If you can keep someone out of, a, you know, where, wherever they would go, if they would prefer to stay in their home. So I think virtual health is really going to help us with that. Um, I definitely think ambient experience or voice recognition especially for nurses is going to be huge, 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 huge. I think that's going to be something that could be a game changer. Um, if we can get away from the mousing and the clicking, I had a chief nursing officer tell me I've got to get my nurses off the mouse. Like they click, click, click. I got to get, it's crazy how much. Um, the um, the uh, EMEA here in the U.S., they, they did a study, uh, they did a 25, it's called 25 by five, where they're trying to 
decrease the burden of electronic documentation 75%, so down to 25% in the next five years. And they did a huge, they had a huge um, cohort where they brought in everyone and it was amazing the number of clicks. They counted clicks and it was insane um, how many clicks that we were asking these clinical providers to do. In addition, they looked at the different standards across organization and they had organizations that had, you know, an assessment, an admission assessment that took four hours to complete. Who has four hours to complete an admission assessment? And then there were others that were like 45 minutes. Like, so how do we kind of standardize? I think that standardization and part of standardization in my mind is interoperability. You know, it's fire standard. It's, you know, how do we standardize the technology as well as, you know, the coding that we're doing like US CDI is how we're moving forward in the US. Um, so I think that's going to be really important. So the un underpinnings of our technology are all disparate now. How do we help? make it be more um, integrate, more better integrated, right? More interoperable. And that's going to help patients as well when they look at their electronic health records. They don't see, you know, have five different ones because they have five different hospitals they've been to. Um, and then um, I would say ultimately, um, and I don't necessarily know that this is any single technology, um, but I can tell you when I was a clinician, um, hospitals were broken. They were just broken. We we knew the brokenness of the hospital. We would never have supplies we needed. We would do procurement rounds where someone would run around and essentially go to another unit and find us whatever we needed. Um, the ProPAC monitor that I used for my patients for transport, they actually had it and it hit it in the ceiling tiles because it would get stolen. I mean, just, you know, we've always had like these kind of brokenness things. Um, the one thing that COVID did do, as horrible as it has been, it's kind of shined the light of the brokenness to the general population or the general public. We used to hide that from patients. We didn't want patients to know we were working short or, you know, this happened or whatever. So we would hide that. None of that's hidden anymore. So the knowledge that um, there's this brokenness within healthcare and that we all need to be on board to fix it. I think, um, you know, we have a lot of hope for that. I, I have hope that we can really fix it. And as part of that, I think um, the biggest thing will be around provider well-being. How do we ensure our providers are taken care of? How are we sure that they're not um, what they call the second victim? You know, because that was my clinical practice. And I didn't realize I was a sec second victim many times. I was talking to one of my shock trauma, um, you know, coworkers who's also in information technology. And um, she said, you know, we were second victims, but we didn't realize it. And that is essentially that we would have many times a patient would come in they could be in full arrest or, and die. And then we would just move to the next patient. We never took a moment to say disconnect or that was a traumatic event for us. We just kept moving. Um, and it was similar to her in the OR, right? Where she would have a patient. Um, she recalls very clearly like a really young patient who came in and didn't survive. And then the charge nurse came in and said, okay, I need you to go back to OR5 now. And she literally didn't have a second to like absorb what happened. So we have this huge... Um, huge problem within um, healthcare in general that we just don't take care of ourselves as clinicians. And I think that this is going to give us an opportunity to do that in a way that's not looked, um, you know, that's not criticized, right? Because you and I know, right, Neem, as providers, um, and I'm sure I'm similar, I'm thinking it's somewhat similar in the U.S. If you're a provider, you don't necessarily say, oh, I, have, I need mental health help because it looks like a stigma to you. And then they could say, wait a minute, should you be working and things like that? So it's really, it was really risky 
Um, but now I think that there's more light on it and we have an opportunity. And I believe this could be done via technology, whether it's, you know, I log into the EMR and I say my patient expired. And then I get a poke that says, Hey, maybe you need a 30 second meditation. Oh, maybe you don't like to meditate. Maybe you want to walk around the unit or around the block or something. You know what I mean? Like I caught precision well-being. Um, that to me would be, you know, I made that up name. So whatever that to me would be, <laughs> the ultimate, right. Yeah. That would be the ultimate. I thing. really like that. I like improve. Well, can do that. I mean, I know that's kind of like what you guys do, but precision yeah. well-being is what I'm talking oh, about. I, mean. I totally stole it from precision medicine. Cause I think that's the next thing, right. I think precision yeah. medicine is going to be huge. Oh, you've, you've encapsulated it so nicely though. Yeah. It is that because you, you know that the technology making it personal uh to to that person and i love the the well i love and you know it's bittersweet about the second victim that's really powerful um and in terms of the the well-being element of it i think um we talk about technology as being so dry and so um lacking that kind of human connection and and what you've said there about um uh, precision well-being um do we need to trademark trademark <laughs> what do we need to go learn? for it go for it i'm gifting <laughs> I it to you it. Yeah. i love it uh yeah it, it, it is 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 what you know what what we're trying to say with improve well because if you can look at those metrics and you can spot trends uh and you can empower the individual um, their their state of mental well-being, uh, their connectedness to the organisation, and ultimately, which will all translate into better patient care, which um, you and I um, know 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 so well. Um, have you seen um, other kind of promising technology? I mean, we're talking about the patient side, but in terms of, I guess, the staff side of it, um, the areas. I mean. You know, across healthcare systems, burnout um, continues is uh, a really pressing problem. Um, are there interventions you've seen, and some of these might not even be technology per se, but things that people have been doing in your experience that um, you say, you know, well, that's great, and you know, I would have loved that. Um, and um, I've got a friend in the UK, Naeem, who would like that as well. Is there other things that you you might have seen in terms of a healthcare professional? Yeah, actually, um, so we work with a few partners who actually do um, have the ability, like say you talk into your phone and it can give you like an analysis of if you're stressed based on your voice, which I think is pretty cool, like a 30 second thing. Um, we have other um, other partners that we work with where, um, you know, you can do different surveys or, um, you know, answer different questions. It'll actually do that type of thing, right? Where it'll actually render to you as the provider, like something that you might want to do, or how do you look after your well health and well-being? You know, there's a lot of like well-being asked. I think the situation is for our healthcare providers, how do we embed it into their workflow? And how do we look at the signals, right? Like somebody died, that's traumatic. Or I just told a parent their child has cancer, right? Like, could we look at the soap note and see certain words and then send a trigger to that provider who just did that, right? The doc that documented that. So I definitely see that there is definitely capabilities um, around it. Um, I do also know that um, I'll have to look at the, I'll have to look at the, um, I'll have to look it up and let you know. Um, Johns Hopkins has a program called RISE, R-I-S-E. And um, RISE is actually being um, 
distributed to other organizations. And really it's about caring for the caregiver. And what they do is they actually promote peer support for caregivers in distress. And I think they're trying to expand it out to have like wellness rooms and things like that. Um, I will say I'm not 100%. Um, I definitely think RISE is wonderful um, as far as, um, you know, having your peers to support you. But again, having like a physical room to go to in, in within a hospital, when I know myself in my unit, I never got a chance to, you know, go to cafeteria to get lunch. So I don't know that I would get that opportunity or would I do it on my, as I'm leaving my shift, I'm not 100% sure. The situation really is that our, as healthcare providers, um, people who are healthcare providers are very much highly resilient people. It's in our DNA. We are very, very resilient. I firmly believe we were, we are very resilient, whether we were resilient and decided to go in the profession or whether we were kind of trained to be more resilient. Um, what essentially has happened over time, especially during COVID times is our, or, you know, we work in a 12 hour shift, our resilience just gets kind of like drip, 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 right. And gets worn around, worn away, worn away. And what happens is we leave our shift, we're driving home and it hits us. All these things that happen kind of come to us and it's very, very stressful. And then we get home, but we don't want to share it with our families. Most people elect to not share it with their families because I think it's too stressful. They don't, they don't want to share that. And then we go back the next day and we do the same thing. Um, so that's why I feel like it's having something that can kind of meet you where you are. And, you know, especially generationally, right. Especially nurses. I had a chief nursing officer told me she has nurses between 20 and 70. So that's five generations she has to cover. Mm -hmm. And the 20 year old and the 70 year old do not interact with technology the same way, as you know, so, um, you know, how would we across that span of generations with, you know, uh, potentially a well-being app or something like that to meet them where they are? I think that would be really important. We need to take that end users into consideration. That's why I call it precision wellness. The 70 year old is not going to want what the 20 year old wants. Yeah. So I think that's important. That's to me, that's a big piece of it. Um, so hopefully that I hope that answered your question. I, I think I was kind of on the right track there. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I um I I think you highlight a really interesting challenge there in terms of the adoption of technology across the health and care system. Um the 20-year-old is going to use technology very differently to the 70-year-old. And um it's it's interesting because before uh co-founding Improver with Naeem, my career was in biotech. So we've seen innovation in biotech takes a very, very long time. Um healthcare in general is is a risk averse sort of sector but a sector that we are all very passionate about clearly um and i think everybody can get passionate about this sector because we're all users of healthcare so um what do you think the top the, like the main challenges in terms of the adoption of of technology across healthcare because to the outsider it could look like nothing in healthcare happens fast. Whereas while we're in it, we feel like perhaps it is happening fast. We saw in the pandemic, the rapid spread of technology, um, you know, Microsoft Teams instantly rolled out across the NHS mm. here, the NHS, the, world fits the world's fifth largest employer, you know, so, so organizations can move quickly. Um, I realize it's qu probably quite a big question, but do you have a view on what the biggest challenge is for the uptake of technology? Is it, is it funding? Is it, is it, accessibility and and sort of catering for the the 20 year old nurse versus the 70 year old nurse or you know do, do you have a personal view on what the biggest challenge is 
I think that organizations are just slow moving, right? The pandemic made them move fast. But I think, for example, I didn't mention the cloud, but I think the cloud is huge, right? Huge because there's these tremendous volumes of data you really need, especially if you're doing AI, you need a tremendous amount of compute power. You can build the algorithms. You know what I mean? There's so much to the cloud, um, but yet we see so many laggards to the cloud. And um, I think it's um, legacy, um, risk, risk adver adversity. Um, you know, if I spent, you know, many millions of dollars on a big data center, maybe, you know, that was my job to do and I don't want to move it. Um, it could be lack of education and training. You have a group of people that knows how to deal with servers, but they don't necessarily know how to, you know, write code or, you know what I mean? So I think that can be a piece of it. Um, I just think that um, healthcare has been, um, I think the risk adversity is kind of the big umbrella of all of that, right? Because all of that yeah. incurs risk. And, you know, when you're doing anything related to patients, you want to make sure that it's done in a safe manner. Um, you know, quality yeah. is very highly important. Um, so I think that's part of it. Um, I think that um, the rollout of electronic health records is a huge resource, re hugely resource intensity. So maybe you don't have the resources, you know, to really write those algorithms or, you know, to to do the things that you really want to do. Um, but back to Naeem's question, right? Like more nurses or more technology. Mm -hmm. um, I think it would be great if we could do both, but knowing that we're not gonna be getting more nurses, right? That in the US, the average nurse's age is 52. It used to be 44 before COVID. So that, mm -hmm. so what happened is a lot of younger people come in and leave. Mm -hmm. And then the average nurse educator in the US is 56. And the problem we have is there's only so many educators and there's this, you know, numbers game, right? You can only do so many students. So therefore you can't bring in more and more, even though we're turning people away from nursing school, we can't bring more and more in. So that means to me, we've got to do something with technology. To me, that's where like the, the virtual reality could come in. Like, can we educate? So therefore you can use virtual reality to help um, educate and get additional hands-on experience if you weren't able to get into your clinicals and things like that. Again, technology can assist there, um, which I think that virtual reality and simulation will start to see more and more. Um, those are the types of things that we need to adjunct, not replace people, but just adjunct them so that we can ensure that our students are getting what they need and move them through that um, pipeline and that talent acquisition quicker. Um, but I just feel that I don't know that's necessarily, I would say one thing, Laura, I just feel like that there's so many things and, you know, we're very, um, you know, we do things, you know, we're, um, you know, married to the old way of things. A lot of times I get many, many requests for this thing called the hospital of the future. People can't see me. I'm doing air quotes, hospital of the future. And I always say, well, what do you think the hospital of the future is? And you know, because I know what I think it is and it's not a hospital. It's not a building. It's, there's going to be a building when I break my leg, I need to go somewhere for surgery, but the majority of it's going to be outside of a building and we need hospitals and providers to kind of realize that and to help to pivot to the more virtual way. Um, you know, we have ICU units in homes now and things like that. So I kind of laugh and, you know, not, you know, in a funny way about hospital in the future, you know, what I what I do try to say is, you know, what if we look at it instead of, um, you know, necessarily calling it the hospital of the future? Why don't we look at it as a way of like, how can we do 
digital transformation. You know, what are we doing for our digital transformation so that we can make these improvements so that we can kind of keep, you know, moving forward in a positive way. And, you know, I can think of many things. Um, I don't know if you want me to get into the detail of that, because I know, I know you had other questions, but I can get into, you know, there's many things that we can think of to, you know, kind of participate that. And just, you know, one of them is a big culture. Do you mm -hmm. have a culture for digital transformation? And a lot of organizations do may not. So how do they get that culture? You know, um, do you have technology that communicates? We talked about interoperability very briefly. Are you playing the long game? This isn't just, you know, like a six month thing, like right? you have to really plan. It's a whole strategy. Data is very important. And do you really have a good data strategy? Do you, are you really focused on the data? And do you understand that, you know, there are certain requirements around scalability, productivity, flexibility. There's a lot to the data. Preparing for talent 2.0. Um, you know, we need to invest in these technologies in order to get the talent in, right? We need to be able to provide our employees with the ability to be educated on the new systems and the digital strategies. And then cybersecurity is a really big one too. We haven't really touched on that. That's not necessarily my first thought process when I think of, you know, um, what's going on within organizations. But we know, especially during COVID, there was a ton of cyber hits, and it, our data is very, I get, you know, text all the time, oh, you were a breach or whatever happened. And, you know, it's, it's insane. There's a lot of bad actors out there. So how do we keep them from our organizations? Because our data is really precious. Healthcare data is very precious. That was uh, a very, very, the breadth of your experience, uh, starting off from that very personal story um, covering AI and uh you know ending on like a vision i guess for a future or a shared vision was really really powerful so thank you so much for that uh kathleen we we have um a, a segment which lara is going to introduce that we do for all our guests uh, which is called small but mighty and uh i hand over to lara to to describe it <laughs> Thanks, Naeem. Um, Kathleen, as you know, um, Improve Well is all about um, giving the frontline a voice 24-7 to share their real-time feedback. And one of the feedback systems we have is ideas for improvement. So um, sometimes we ask our guests to comment on a particular idea that has come through the platform. Um, but given your absolute passion for the nursing profession as well as uh, you know you're um equally as passionate i think uh, with the with the technology side of things um we'd really like to turn it over to you to i guess it may not even be a technological advancement but what what small but mighty change do you feel is needed um in your world of nursing informatics at the moment yeah, that's a good question, Laura. For me, it's really about now that we have all this data, how do we take the data and make the inset, insights and then leverage the interventions? And that could be both for the patient and the provider. And I think I already said that. So I don't know if this was anything groundbreaking, but um, I really believe that nurse informaticists can be thought leaders in their organizations. Um, and, you know, they can be very, very valuable. You know, we're critical thinkers, we're analytical thinkers. Um, so, you know, leverage them right within your organization, um, because they can be very helpful and they, you know, really do have their pulse, their finger on the pulse of the front lines. So they're able to be able to get you that feedback. But I think for nurse informaticists that that would be my specific ask. 
which is perfect, you know, and some of these things are just very simple changes that if everybody made them every day, every week, um, it would really have a huge impact on the system. So thank you, Kathleen, and thank you so much for such a fascinating um, discussion today. And um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, we could carry on talking for hours, I feel, you know, you've, you've sparked a lot of, <laughs> sparked a lot more questions in my mind. And, um, you know, perhaps we can continue the conversation, um, you know, another time, because I'm, I'm sure there's plenty more uh, that will happen over the, the next 12 months that we can loop back on. And also aren't, um, aren't the nurses and the healthcare community, wider healthcare community, so so proud and lucky to have someone like you. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, uh, and the, you know, everything, we began with your bio, but everything you've you've done and continue to do has been, uh, has been amazing. And thank you for leaving us with so many uh, things to think about. Um, uh, precision well-being being number one for me <laughs> thanks name thanks laura i really appreciate the opportunity just to champion the nurse informaticist out there thank you so much the improver is a production of improver limited thank you so much to today's guest kathleen mcgrow to learn more about the improver solution visit improveworld.com Subscribe to The Improver at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening.